This is episode 55 of Beyond the Bulletin. Hello and welcome to episode 55 of Beyond the Bulletin. I'm Brandon Sweet, editor of The Daily Bulletin. And for media relations, I'm Pamela Smite. We're coming to you from our homes where we're practicing physical distancing. Thank you for joining us as we go Beyond the Bulletin. And like we do every week, we'll talk about some of the top stories featured in the Daily Bulletin and then look ahead to see what's on the horizon, both inside and outside Ring Road. Mostly outside Ring Road these days. We'll also take the opportunity to speak with Waterloo people and personalities about key issues that matter. Coming up, my conversation with Brian Dixon, a professor from the Department of Biology who's temporarily shifted his research focus from fish to finding immunity to COVID-19. So here we are, episode 55 and still alive. <laughs> I can't drive 55. That could be a song. So we're back for a short break after the August civic holiday. Did you have a good one? I did. I did. How about yours? Yeah, it was very restorative. Thank you. But lots been happening since the uh, the podcast took a break. President Farron Hamdalopper and other senior administrators have been meeting with students, faculty, and staff to listen and gather feedback on the university's anti-racism activities. In an update to the university's executive council last week, the president outlined how these meetings are helping to shape the way the university moves ahead, and that this work must involve the leadership, advice, and reflections of people with lived experiences of racism. Charmaine Dean, Vice President Research and International, will help lead a consultative approach to listening to individuals and groups on campus. University leaders will continue meeting with individuals and groups to listen to their feedback on ways the university will work to address racism, including anti-Black racism and anti-Indigenous racism on campus. The University of Waterloo Library has created an Indigenous Peoples in Canada reading list. This list expands and builds on current understandings of the experiences of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people in Canada. The library remains closed as part of the university's response to the global pandemic. But while the closure limits access to hard copies of the highlighted titles, several electronic books appear on the list and you can access them online. You might also order copies of these titles from your local public libraries that offer curbside services like the Waterloo Public Library's curbside pickup service and the Kitchener Public Library's curb and carry or from a local bookstore. I like that curb and carry. (laughs) That's how I live my life. Curb and carry. As we mentioned in our last couple of episodes, masks or other face coverings are now required for anyone entering campus buildings. If you've been approved to return to campus or to enter any university buildings, you need to wear a face covering in common indoor spaces. Additionally, the university has made some changes to its guidance on face coverings after listening to feedback from the campus community and discussing further with medical consultants. In addition to corridors, lobbies, washrooms, elevators, and meeting rooms, the common indoor areas where masks are required now also include classrooms and teaching labs. Research labs are considered employee-only spaces for the time being. Supervisors will set the expectation with their teams based on the physical setup of the lab and the activities taking place therein. And the exception concerning hearing impairments only applies to the person speaking to the person with the hearing impairment if the ability to see the mouth is essential for communication. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Yes. Why don't you just do that instead of putting the... (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh, dear. No, we got to do it the right way. Yeah, I know. Now, here's what's coming up. September is just around the corner, and with it, the start of a rather unique fall term. Mm. 
the university is getting ready to welcome our students back for a new school year. While for most of them, this will mean studying remotely, we do expect to welcome a number of students back to campus physically. For students who are arriving on campus from outside of the country, the Student Success Office has launched a new COVID-19 travel and quarantine checklist. The goal of the checklist is to help students prepare to travel internationally and meet mandatory 14-day quarantine or self-isolation requirements. Highlights of the checklist include a guide for students to develop their own quarantine plan, transportation options to travel to their place of quarantine, accommodation suggestions, resources for maintaining overall well-being and health supports if they become ill, and social and community resources, including virtual ways to connect with other students. If you'd like to take an active role in welcoming our students back, Campus Housing is looking for volunteers to assist with move-in. Typically held over three days on Labor Day weekend, this year's move-in will take place between August 24th and September 4th. That is getting really close. As a move-in volunteer, you can help our students feel safe and connected to campus when they arrive. Volunteer duties include screening residents, providing wayfinding assistance, and reminding residents to sanitize their hands as they enter buildings. To sign up for a two-hour volunteer shift and see the full checklist, look for the link in the show notes. A new academic readiness bursary of up to $500 is available to students who are registered for the fall 2020 term. Eligible expenses are those related to studying remotely as a result of COVID-19. So that could include computer upgrades and equipment such as a monitor, webcam, headset, quarantine-related expenses, and internet access. I wonder uh, if we could get reimbursements for a full-on VR helmet rig. (laughs) Or Netflix, which is mandatory. Yes, that true virtual reality experience. Students may also request support for unanticipated expenses directly related to their academic readiness or their ability to engage meaningfully with the university remotely as a result of COVID-19. These expenses may include things like study space setup or childcare costs. The deadline to apply for the academic readiness bursary is September 30th. And now, the interview. Before the pandemic, Brian Dixon conducted research on immunity in the fish we eat. He recently answered the call to pivot his focus to the fight against COVID-19. And as he tells Pamela, the work could help in the development of a vaccine. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Good afternoon, Pamela. So you teach immunology, which looks at the immune system and the ways that it can protect an organism against infection, right? How does that work? Well, as anyone who's taken my class will tell you, it's complicated. (laughs) But one of the main ways you defend against viruses is you produce antibodies, which are sticky proteins that circulate in your blood. And as the virus gets in, it tries to attach to your cells. The antibodies actually code it or wrap around it, almost like saran wrap. And then the virus is prevented from sticking to your cells because it's all wrapped up and coded. The antibodies also work as a target for other mechanisms you have that will kill the virus, particularly the macrophages, which are like amoeboid cells that, that chew it up and kill it. Um, and, and there's other mechanisms that, that are used by antibodies as well. Now, your focus has been primarily fish uh, and, and specifically the species of fish that we eat. So, yeah, aquaculture is hugely important. Um, for one thing, uh, we don't catch any more fish from the ocean in terms of tons of, of, of animals than we did in 1993. So it, it, the capture fisheries are really tapped out. And if the world wants to eat fish, which is a very important protein source for mo- much of the third world um, and is a very nutritious and, and healthy uh, 
alternative for, for people, um, we have to do aquaculture. Aquaculture is growing hugely. And in fact, right now, more than 50% of the fish that the world eats is, is, comes from fish farms. Because I'm an immunologist, I'm interested in the health of the fish. So I look at genetic improvement of fish, finding families of fish that respond better in certain situations um, or respond better to a particular disease and breeding them. I look at diagnostics. So um, it's not very easy to tell if a fish is healthy looking at it from the outside until it's pretty much diseased and dead. So I work on assays you can take uh, samples of their blood from and you can measure how healthy it is by looking at molecules in the immune system. Um, I look at alternatives for treating disease disease in fish. So uh, antibiotics are quite often used in fish because vaccines aren't always effective. And rather than dump antibiotics into the ocean, uh, which aquaculture industry does use a lot, uh, we're going to look for natural solutions, fish immune molecules that we can actually use as treatments to, to reduce that antibiotic use. And are fish in, in fish farms more susceptible to disease than wild stocks? Um, fish do, uh, get a lot of diseases. I, it's hard to say whether they get more than say pigs or cattle or chicken would get, but the thing to remember is fish swim in the ocean and the ocean is basically a soup of bacteria and a soup of viruses. There's, believe it or not, 1 million viral particles per ml of seawater. Not all of them are pathogens, but they wow. swim in a soup of these microorganisms. And so it's very easy for them to pick up a disease if it's floating around. Per milliliter of ocean per water. Per milliliter of ocean water. Yes. So how has the pandemic affected your research? First of all, like everybody, we were locked down and forced to work from home. And as you can imagine, science doesn't happen in your kitchen. So we, we weren't in the lab working. We've recently got back into the lab to work. Um, so it, it has slowed the fish research down uh, a lot. Uh, but we've managed to do, do some things. We have a collaboration with Cuba. We got some equipment there. So things are right. happening. Okay, well, that's good. But um, now you're testing the blood of people. You're not working with fish. How did that come about? Well, there were some calls. I mean, public health put out a call saying, "Can you? what can you do, basically? What can you do to help us in any way, shape, or form? So I filled out their form and said I could do this. Um, the Ontario had a Ontario Together fund, and they said they could, they could provide funding to test things. And there's an also a, a COVID-19 immunity task force, and I contacted them. Now, they've, I think, gone with a, 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 a different kind of assay that can do more samples per day, but they're still working it out. It was really a, uh, the Office of Research found this um, paper on how to test antibodies for COVID-19 in human blood. And because the university wants to be responsive, they looked around for people who could do that. And I'm yeah, one of only two immunologists on campus. <laughs> um, and I was the lab that was set up to do this kind of testing. So they just said, do you think you could do this? Um, it involved a lab from New York, a medical school, and they had to supply us with a couple of little chemical reagents, but they were very nice. They published the paper of how they did it online for everyone to see, and they gave us the reagents. And so very quickly, we were able to ramp up because we had the equipment and because I'm actually very fortunate that I have very, very good people working in my lab and we're able to pivot very quickly. But mm. to be honest, much of what we do, as I said, is measuring uh, the immune status of fish and measuring molecules in fish blood. And to be honest, substituting fish blood for human blood in these assays is, is not that complicated. What's a reagent? Some kind of chemical compound you need to, to, to make the assay or the test work. 
There's there's difference in safety protocols. We have to wear a little bit more PPE because when we're working with a, f- a fish blood or a fish virus, it's not going to infect us. Mm-hmm. So you have to wear um, a face mask and a mask and gloves and a, and a you know a, a better gown. We usually wear a lab coat. Now we have to wear a plastic gown. Wow. We did have to move all the research into a special room uh, called a level two room. Mm-hmm. And it's just a room that's sort of isolated from everything else so people don't wander in and out. And it's a room where you're especially clean. And you have a... Um, a special uh, cabinet that you do the work in that has a, a special filter, a HEPA filter that filters out viruses. So we did have to be a little bit more secure in what we're doing. Um, uh, and, you know, so a little bit more safety protocols. But it, it's basically the same thing. We do work in that cabinet for our regular work as well with some of the viruses we work with just because we don't want to spread viruses around. These are samples from humans who have or have had COVID-19. Correct. But coronaviruses, the type of virus that COVID-19 is caused by, are not very prevalent in blood. They tend to stay actually in the lungs and the gut and other tissues. And it's very simple to inactivate this virus in blood. All you do is heat the blood up to 60 degrees Celsius. (laughs) And what happens is then the virus falls apart. The reagent, the chemical that we got from the New York lab, was um, a way of making the viral protein, the spike protein, in a bacteria so that we don't have to use a live virus. We just have one protein of the virus in isolation. So we never actually have the live virus in our lab. I mean, in fact, we wouldn't be allowed to. You need a, like a level level four lab like they have in Winnipeg to handle it, right. whereas we only have a level two lab. But for inactivated virus, it's fine. Oh, I see. Okay. And what are you looking for in these human blood samples? So in the human blood samples, we're looking for antibodies. So as I said earlier, when you respond to a pathogen, you tend to make antibodies. There's special cells that make the antibodies that respond very specifically, almost like a lock and key to a very specific pathogen. So we're looking for those specific antibodies that respond to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, And it's pretty easy to do because we just, we have a recombinant protein, uh, just a piece of the protein from the virus. We put it on a really a plastic plate We put the blood on. If there's antibodies in that blood sample, they will stick to the plate. We wash everything away, and then we can detect the the antibody if it's there. And if it's not there, you don't detect anything. And so why are you looking for these antibodies? Antibodies are a sign that people have been infected uh, and have uh, probably recovered from the infection. Ideally, it would tell us that they're now immune and they're not going to get sick again. But to be honest, the literature is very unclear on whether people get sick a second time. It's not very common, and I haven't seen much on it. Mm. Um, So we're hoping that people are immune if they have antibodies, but we're not certain. But it is a way of saying that you've been exposed and you perhaps have some protection. So are these samples from people that hospitals or health authorities aren't sure if they're sick? Are you actually doing the testing for them? Um, no. Uh, well, right now, it, it is a way that we could test potentially, and I'm working with some industrial partners locally to develop tests to, to sort of screen people at a larger base to see if they have been exposed to the virus without knowing if they were sick. But the samples I'm doing right now, um, just because we are getting the assay up and running, are from people that the, 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 my partners know have either been sick or haven't been sick. And they gave it to us in, in a form of what we would call in science blind. I, we didn't know which ones were people who'd been sick and which ones were people who had never been or had at least not shown symptoms of the virus. And we had to predict ourselves what they were like. Yeah. And, but we got it 100% right. In fact, with a couple of wrinkles, there was, there was one person who had passed the genetic test to say they had it but didn't have antibodies. And mm. that had been 
tested before because we were testing against other methods and we got that right as well. Hmm. Why would that happen? Why would somebody have it and not only antibodies? Um, in, in this case, probably because the person got the, the virus very late, just a few days before they took the blood sample. It takes about four days to develop antibodies, and it takes actually a good two weeks to develop a very high level of antibodies. So it may be that this person was infected just very quickly before we took the blood sample. So you're looking for antibodies in these people's blood. What is the ultimate goal of this work? Well, it, it could be for many things. It could be to screen to make sure that they've been exposed so that if there is a, any research that shows they're immune, then you can say that they could at least go back to work. Um, you could, you know, uh, increase people's bubbles. You could at least have some kind of confidence that they might not get as sick again. So it's a way of just testing the immune status of people. You're not working on a vaccine, to be clear. No, I'm not working on a vaccine, but this test could be used to see if a vaccine is working. Uh, with a vaccine, you inject a, a part of the virus into the into the person somehow to elicit an immune response. And one of the things in the immune response you would look for is antibodies. So if someone gets vaccinated, we could take a blood sample two weeks later and see if they've developed antibodies, and it will tell you whether the vaccine is working effectively or not. If they have antibodies... Does that automatically mean that they're immune? Well, that's what I said. That the jury is out on that. For many diseases, having antibodies means that you're immune. Um, for this particular virus, we just haven't had enough time to, to, mm. to test that because what has to happen is you have to develop antibodies and then get exposed to the virus again and then see if you get sick or not. But it's not really feasible to do an experiment where you take someone who's been exposed and expose them again. Right. <laughs> and so you have to wait and see if people have antibodies actually develop the illness again. And so we just haven't had enough time, I think, for people to get exposed again. Uh, it looks like there's a lot of people around the world who have been exposed, but estimates in the Canadian population are only 1% of us have been exposed because we locked down really well. <laughs> but the flip side of that is not too many people have got the disease. Right. Can you have a certain number of antibodies that maybe aren't enough antibodies? Do you have to have a certain amount of antibodies? I'm not sure yes. how it works. i got to you, take your class. Yes. Well, you do have to have what we call a titer, but it measures the amount of antibodies in your blood. And you can have a low amount or a high amount. Some of the people we screened had, I would say, less than half the amount of some of the other people. Mm. It varies because everybody's different. It actually varies depending on how much of the virus you got. If you got just a very quick and mild infection, you may not have had enough to develop a large amount of antibodies to. So, and that's the real question, uh, why we don't want to say people have antibodies are immune, because we don't know what level you need on that. And it will take a few months, but maybe by the fall, we'll be able to say, if you have this level of antibodies, you are protected and we'll, we can go from there. Does that mean that the general public could get tested to see if they have antibodies? That's something that, that we're working on. Um, I, I know several people who are working on sampling, uh, like a home sampling test, um, like you could fingerprint, uh, sorry, finger prick yourself and you could send in your sample and they will test to see. It's coming, I think. There will be, there will be tests like that. Um, there may be a cost to it or Public Health Canada could decide that they're going to screen everybody. So it may be coming, but we'll have to see whether the antibodies really do confer protection, I think. From the work you've done and from what you know about the immune system, what do you think the vaccine would look like? Well, the vaccine could have various forms. Um, 
there's lots of technologies for making vaccines. The simplest one is like the the flu vaccine, where the particular protein on the virus that helps it get in our cells is called the spike protein. It sticks out all around it uh, like spikes, and that's why it's called coronavirus, because when you look at a microscope, right. it has that fuzziness around it, like a uh-huh. corona, like a crown. Right. Um, so you could just take that protein, uh, isolate it, right, and then with just that protein, not the whole virus, inject people. Now, the, the experience with coronavirus says that doesn't work particularly well because although it elicits antibodies, it doesn't elicit a high amount. So some of the technologies are trying now, like the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, and actually the one the Russians announced they're going to start vaccinating people with, is actually another virus, a harmless virus that infects people all the time. Um, but doesn't cause disease. And what they do is they genetically engineer that virus to make the spike protein as well. Because it doesn't have any of the other parts of the coronavirus, it doesn't make people sick, but you sort of give them that virus and it grows in their body and they respond, but they also respond to the spike protein and they, they develop an immune response. So there's a third way that they're doing it where they just take the genetic material for the spike protein and they inject that in you because, of course, viruses replicate in our cells. They can't reproduce by themselves. So they get inside our cells and they hijack our machinery inside our cells to replicate. So if you just put the the genetic material for the spike protein alone in your cells, it should make that protein as well. And so you can get a response that way. The only problem with that is the virus that expresses the spike protein and the genetic material from the the coronavirus methods have not been tested or widely used. They're sort of novel technologies that we're scrambling to get going now. So we don't know how well they're going to work. Uh, However it works, uh, the the vaccine is going to have to elicit antibodies. And the other thing it's going to have to elicit is something I'm not testing for. But generally, when your cells get infected with viruses, we have another type of cell in our body called a killer T cell. Mm-hmm. Now, the killer T cell's job is to find a, a cell in your body that's infected with a virus and kill it. <laughs> so, um, and you're going to have to elicit that type of immunity as well. Vaccines have to be designed very carefully. That's why it takes 10 years to do them. Okay. The issue, is, of course, is always side effects. And that's why I think the Russian vaccine is a bit premature because they haven't tested that. But that's also why the vaccines that will be distributed in Canada and the UK and the US will probably take until next March because it takes a lot of time to to test all those things carefully. Do you think it's a one-off? You get the shot once and you're covered for life? Um, well, what we do know about coronaviruses is they don't elicit long-lasting immunity. So the type of, of immunity they, they elicit is short-lived. For some of the other coronaviruses like SARS and MERS, the antibodies only last uh, months to a year or two. So unfortunately, this vaccine is going to have to be one like the flu shot where you're going to have to get it every year to boost your immune system regularly. Um, unlike things like, you know, measles where you can have one boost and you're, you're, or, and you're good for life. Mm-hmm. So it will be an annual thing. Okay. What else do we need to know? One is that this virus isn't going to go away. We're going to have to have a vaccine, but we're going to have to be very careful for a while. The other I would say, and I, I don't want to preach, but believe in science. I know the science looks ugly right now, and I know there's a lot of stories in the newspaper about the science that's going on and this and that, that that works and doesn't work. The problem is a lot of that discussion that scientists have happens behind the scenes. We discuss 
what's happening with a research paper, and it's what's called peer-reviewed. Many scientists look at it, decide whether it's right or wrong, and then only when we as a group of several people or dozens of us have decided it's right do we publish it and release it to the world. What's happening right now is everyone's so desperate for information that the instant someone does an experiment, they're releasing it to the public without that peer review, that self-checking process. And then it turns out that it may not be correct because not everything was thought of and not everything was, was done correctly. So believe in science, look for studies that say they're peer reviewed, which means scientists have looked at it and agreed on it. Read the, the, the experiments and, and the, the stories carefully, and, and please wear masks, be careful, distance. Just do all the things we can to make sure that we get through this. Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you for that reminder and for answering the call. <laughs> no problem. I, I'm uh, happy to contribute. I had a lab full of people, and I don't like to feel like I'm not doing anything, so I'm doing my best. Well, that about wraps it up for us this week. You can find all of our past shows and links about the items we mentioned in today's episode in the show notes on SoundCloud.com. To ensure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe to the Beyond the Bulletin podcast wherever you get your podcasts and recommend us to your colleagues and Waterloo alumni. If you'd like to provide feedback to us or give us an interview idea, please get in touch with us via email at bulletin.uwaterloo.ca. Thanks for listening as we went Beyond the Bulletin. I think my interview with Brian Dixon is the first time I've interviewed somebody who was outside. Doing field recordings? He was on his deck. Oh, very nice. Yes, there was a, I heard a cardinal and some cicadas. I'm not sure they'll make it through the final. Oh, yes. 